by Govanen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and now that I have finally published my final thoughts on The Rings of Power Season 1, I can really get back into talking about the things that I love about Tolkien. And speaking of love, Tolkien had some thoughts about that particular issue. Yes, I referenced Rings of Power just so I could make a ham-handed segue into what is letter number 43 from the Letters of Tolkien, in which he is advising his son Michael on the topic of love, romance, and various related subtopics. And I find this letter fascinating. <clears throat> this is one of those where Tolkien expresses a lot of his thoughts on a topic that has nothing to do with his writing, and you can find some of these in the letters, which of course is this nice handy volume here. It's rather thick, as you can see. It's got quite a lot of letters, and this is just one of many. A good deal of it is taken up in letters talking about Lord of the Rings and other things about his legendarium, but there are many that have nothing to do with that and talk about more down-to-earth real-life things, you might say. Although, calling love a down-to-earth topic might be a little bit off-center, but at any rate, in this particular letter, he gives a rather long discussion of his thoughts on love, romance, the sexual impulse in men and women, how they're different, and all that kind of stuff. And I want to go over a few points that he talks about in there, and I want to go over the whole letter. But there are a few points that I find of particular interest. Some of the stuff he talks about in here is debatable, and many people today would disagree with a lot of what's in this letter. Uh, some of it is very definitely an old-fashioned view of the topic, but it's also a very Christian or Catholic view of the topic coming from a place informed by his faith, for sure. So it's not like it's just him musing off the top of his head, either. He finds a lot of the historical elements of how romance and the idea of courtship has developed in Europe and how it's been informed by Christianity and takes a lot of that into his explanation. And I want to touch on a little bit of that, because he talks about the idea of chivalry, which is kind of an interesting topic in and of itself. And he also gets into this idea of who the soulmate is. And it's really there that I want to spend most of my time, because I think here particularly he has some good advice for anybody, whether you're modern or not modern. What he talks about there, I think, is just good, plain hobbit sense, you might say, and is very valuable to take into consideration if you haven't already gotten yourself into a situation so that you can kind of go into it maybe a little more clear-eyed. Or if you have, you know, already gotten yourself into some kind of romantic relationship, hopefully it can save you from maybe more heartache than is necessary down the road. So let's first look at what he says about chivalry, and then we'll look at soulmates and get some really interesting tidbits of wisdom from Tolkien here. There is in our Western culture the romantic chivalric tradition still strong, though as a product of Christendom, yet by no means the same as Christian ethics, the times are inimical to it. It idealizes love, and as far as it goes, can be very good since it takes in form it takes in far more than physical pleasure and enjoins, if not purity, at least fidelity, and so self-denial, service, courtesy, honor, and courage. Its weakness is, of course, that it began as an artificial courtly game, a way of enjoying love for its own sake without reference to, and indeed contrary to, matrimony. Now this is 
just the first part of what he talks about in terms of chivalry, but already we can get an idea of what he's talking about. The idea of chivalry, a lot of us moderns don't really understand the concept in its fullest sense, and what we might think of is something like, you know, a man holding the door open for the lady, offering to carry her stuff, you know, being the guy who, you know, does things in service to the girl that he likes, or even just, you know, any any particular person that he runs across, just being a knightly, courteous person, right? But that's not really all that chivalry was. Chivalry in its fullest sense had, as he mentions, a, a dimension of being kind of a courtly game. And a really good example of this is Lancelot and Guinevere. Lancelot had kind of a chivalric relationship with Guinevere, which at one level you would think that wouldn't be a problem, except for the fact that Guinevere was already married, and therefore kind of creates problems. And that's why he says it's not only not necessarily purely in reference to matrimony, but in fact is in co contrast to matrimony. Chivalry doesn't have to be about being, you know, pure. It has only to do with being faithful. But, of course, that's only on the part of the guy, <laughs> because it's the guy who's expected to be chivalrous. And while he, Lancelot may have been faithful to Guinevere, Guinevere, in that case, was not so quite faithful to Arthur. And that's a lot of what brings about the downfall of the Knights of the Round Table, is this serious conflict that gets set up by, you know, the the affair that Lancelot and Guinevere have, which fits within the chivalric tradition to some extent, but not really within, you know, what what Tolkien is going to talk about in terms of the Christian ethic of marriage. And therefore, it's like he's... The idea is chivalry was informed by Christianity in some sense, but it was never really purely Christian. And that's kind of what he gets into next. Its center was not God, but imaginary deities, love and the lady. It still tends to make the lady a kind of guiding star or divinity of the old-fashioned his divinity, equals the woman he loves, the object or reason of noble conduct. This is, of course, false and at best make-believe. The woman is another fallen human being with a soul in peril, but combined and harmonized with religion, as long ago it was, producing much of that beautiful devotion to Our Lady, meaning the Virgin Mary, speaking as a Catholic, that has been God's way of refining so much of our gross manly natures and emotions and also of warming and coloring our hard, bitter religion, it can be very noble. Then it produces what I suppose is still felt among those who retain even vestigiary Christianity to be the highest ideal of love between man and woman. Yet I still think it has its dangers. It is not wholly true, and it is not perfectly theocentric. So there he gets into that topic of the idea that it has been kind of affected by Christianity and therefore made a little bit safer, but it's still dangerous because it's not really just a Christian view of love. Now, remember, he's talking from a Catholic point of view here, and he's talking about how the one of the dangers here is that chivalry puts the woman on a pedestal, even though the woman is not really a thing that you put on a pedestal. Neither men nor women deserve to be on pedestals because we're all souls in peril, as he says. It's a very dangerous thing to do to put somebody that you're romantically interested in 
on a pedestal in a way that you feel like they can do no wrong and they're your kind of guiding star, as he puts it, because at that point you have left behind the idea of following a consistent ethic and transferred that into a person who is not a perfect ideal. None of us are perfect ideals. And therefore, if you put your emphasis on a person as your perfect ideal, it's going to lead you astray. And that is part of the danger that Tolkien sees in the chivalric idea. Then he continues, It takes, or at any rate has in the past taken, the young man's eye off women as they are, as companions in shipwreck, not guiding stars. One result is for observation of the actual to make the young man turn cynical to forget their desires, needs, and temptations. It inculcates exaggerated notions of true love as a fire from without, a permanent exaltation unrelated to age, childbearing, and plain life, and unrelated to will and purpose. One result of that is to make young folk look for a love that will keep them always nice and warm in a cold world without any effort of theirs, and the incurably romantic go on looking even in the squalor of the divorce courts. And here... This is where the reason for going into the chivalry bit really comes in, because this plays into his concept of the soulmate where that he talks about a little bit later in this letter. But he's talking here about the idea that the reason holding the woman up on a pedestal doesn't work is because, as he kind of hinted at earlier, they have their own problems, and that's going to lead to issues down the road. If you treat a woman, or if a woman treats a man like they're perfect... And then find out, well, actually they have their own foibles and they're not so nice all the time. Then it's not going to make you into a better person. It's probably going to make you turn cynical. And this can have a profound effect on the way that you view the world, the other sex, everything. You know, this is just a recipe for disaster is basically what Tolkien is saying. And he says that this idea, you know, if you don't get ruined of it again kind of at least leads to this issue of seeing love as a thing that you can get an idealized form of that will always keep you nice and warm and this is kind of where it goes to that topic of the soulmate it doesn't get into that immediately in the letter but it it's a nice segue to that topic so let's look at what he says on that topic so on the way from his discussion of ch chivalry he talks about some of how the romantic impulse in women tends to make them look at men, and I'm going to skip over that because A, Tolkien was a man talking about women and therefore may have a tendency to overgeneralize, but also because it's a little bit less relevant to the main topic I'm trying to get to. And he next mentions this idea that men are just not naturally monogamous. Uh, and there's a reason he goes through this, and it eventually gets us down to where I'm going to get to, but he talks about how men really are perfectly natural to be polygamous. I mean, it's just an easy thing for a man biologically to do. And he, he even throws in a rather interesting quip about Brigham Young. He says, Brigham Young, I believe, was a healthy and happy man, referring, of course, to the founder of the Church of Latter-day Saints, who... Back in those days, they were perfectly accepting of polygamy. Uh, but it, well, maybe not in Tolkien's time when he wrote this letter, but at least earlier in, in Brigham Young's time, I should clarify. So 
He then goes on and says, However, the essence of a fallen world is that the best cannot be attained by free enjoyment or by what is called self-realization, usually a nice name for self-indulgence, wholly inimical to the realization of other selves, but by denial, by suffering. Faithfulness in Christian marriage entails that, great mortification. For a Christian man, there is no escape. Marriage may help to sanctify and direct to its proper object his sexual desires. Its grace may help him in the struggle, but the struggle remains. It will not satisfy him, as hunger may be kept off by regular meals. It will offer as many difficulties to the purity proper to that state as it provides easements. So he's talking here about the idea that within a Christian ethic of marriage, you're still going to have that temptation as a man to something of more like polygamy. There's going to be more there's always going to be more hunger than you can ever satisfy because you could eat one meal, but then you're going to get hungry again. And eventually that's going to lead to probably some form of infidelity. And Tolkien talks about that just next up in this letter. He says, No man, however truly he loved his betrothed as a, as, and bride as a young man, has lived faithful to her as a wife in mind and body without deliberate conscious exercise of the will, without self-denial. Too few are told that, even those brought up in the church. Those outside seem seldom to have heard it. When the glamour wears off or merely works a bit thin, they think they have made a mistake and that the real soulmate is still to find. The real soulmate too often proves to be the next sexually attractive person that comes along. So here, here he finally gets to this topic. He says that the idea that a man is going to ever be satisfied is not true because what ultimately happens is the glamour wears off and there is some extent to which that is inevitable in any marriage and therefore to actually be perfectly faithful to your wife in the Christian sense in mind and body you know and this harkens back to what Jesus says in the gospels about if you even look at a woman lustfully you have committed adultery in your heart so Tolkien is taking that admonition by Jesus very seriously here he's saying to be truly faithful, you have to exercise your will constantly, and it is a fight to do so. And he's not lying. <laughs> you know, as he mentioned earlier, men are not by nature monogamous, and it's really hard for most men, you know, there may be some exceptions, but for most men, the sexual instinct is a very powerful thing that does not lend itself well to just sticking with one partner for their entire lives, both physically and mentally. And he said, this is where he transitions into the soulmate topic and starts talking about how this idea tends to lead us to the very dangerous notion that, well, if I'm not really in love with my partner anymore, they must not be my true soulmate. And Tolkien is going to caution against this. He's going to say that that's not really how this works because of everything else that he's already said this idea that you're going to be nice and warm inside forever is really a, a an artifact of this tradition that we have in our culture of chivalry and you know this idealized version of what love should be like which sounds great in a story but which is not really true to life so he continues to repeat, the real soulmate too often proves to be the next sexually attractive person that comes along, someone whom they might indeed very, very profitably have married, if only. Hence divorce, to provide the if only. 
and of course they are as a rule quite right. They did make a mistake. Only a very wise man at the end of his life could make a sound judgment concerning whom, amongst the total possible chances, he ought most profitably to have married. Nearly all marriages, even happy ones, are mistakes, in the sense that almost certainly in a more perfect world, or even with a little more care in this very imperfect one, both partners might have found more suitable mates. But the real soulmate is the one you are actually married to. You really do very little choosing. Life and circumstances do most of it. Though if there is a god, these must be his instruments or his appearances. It is notorious that, in fact, happy marriages are more common where the choosing by the young persons is even more limited by parental or familial authority, as long as there is a social ethic of plain unromantic responsibility and conjugal fidelity. But even in countries where the romantic tradition has so far affected social arrangements as to make people believe that the choosing of a mate is solely the concern of the young, only the rarest good fortune brings together the man and the woman who are really, as it were, destined for one another, and capable of a very great and splendid love. The idea still dazzles us, catches us by the throat. Poems and stories in multitudes have been written on the theme, more probably than the total of such loves in real life. In such great inevitable love, often love at first sight, we catch a vision, I suppose, of marriage as it should have been in an unfallen world. In this fallen world we have as our only guides prudence, wisdom, rare in youth, too late in age, a clean heart, and fidelity of will. So this is where I really wanted to get to with this letter, because this is where Tolkien really comes down to the crux of the issue. The soulmate is not the perfect person that you could have married in an idealized scenario, because there is no idealized scenario. And that comment there towards the end, he says that wisdom is rarely found in the young and comes too late in age, because once you're old, it's kind of too late to get married and do what marriage is really all about. He doesn't really spend a lot of time on this topic, but he mentions earlier in the letter, of course, that childbearing is one aspect of marriage. And the whole point here is the soulmate is not the person that you are ideally suited to be with because you may never even meet that person in life and even if you do you wouldn't even necessarily recognize that as you know the best person to marry the best person for you to marry is probably not the one that is immediately most attractive the best person for you to marry may be the person who is going to help you grow as a person and growth is painful and therefore being around that person might be initially kind of uncomfortable <laughs> you know there's all kinds of things about being married that are important besides merely the satisfaction of, you know, the human desire that goes along with that. And so Tolkien is basically saying, unless you get super lucky, you're never going to marry the one person that you were supposed to marry because it's, you know, there is a certain element for sure of choice in the matter, but as he points out, most of the decision is made for you. There are, at this point in history, over 7 billion people on the planet, if I remember my stats correctly. And what are the odds that out of that you know, 7 billion person mass, any given individual meets his perfect soulmate? You're never going to meet the vast majority of them, even if you're well-traveled and go to all kinds of places in the world. You'll simply never even run into that many people. So if the person that you really ought to marry just happens to live in, say, Uzbekistan, who visits Uzbekistan if you live in the United States? Virtually nobody. So this idea that you could find the perfect person 
really tends to be, as Tolkien says, really it just tends to mean the next most sexually attractive person you meet. You know, you get tired of the, the spouse that you already have, and somebody else comes along who's really exciting and gives you that nice, warm, fuzzy feeling, and it's like, oh, well, that must be the true soulmate. Well, but you had that feeling with your first spouse, so that idea is such a poor guide as to what a, a soulmate is. And this is why Tolkien comes down and says, your true soulmate is the one you're actually married to. Why? You have mated. Body and soul. The idea that you are married, both mind and body, is a rather important one in Christian terms. And of course, that's the perspective from what from which Tolkien is talking. But even if you take out the Christian aspect of what he's saying, it is still very much a good bit of wisdom to recognize that not every love affair is going to be exciting for an entire lifetime. And even if you could manage that, that doesn't mean there aren't going to be slow periods. And therefore, if you're going to be on the lookout for the true soulmate, you'll probably never find them. And your best bet is to find somebody that you can really love with your mind and will and stick with that person for life. And as he mentions, a lot of happier marriages are based not so much on just the passion of a young person getting married and thinking that passion is going to last for a lifetime, but rather having relatively few choices, but being very consciously engaged in the idea of fidelity and mutual service to each other. Because ultimately, the other stuff just doesn't last. I mean, you just... It's very, very rare, as he says, outside of stories, to find that kind of a love. And if, you know, if those even exist, most of us, most of us have never really heard of them. What we have all heard of is stories of, you know, 100-year-old couples who have been married for 80 years, but they always have stories about how they had rough periods in their life but they stuck together out of a sense of fidelity to each other, and that's what makes for the happy marriage, ultimately. It's not the fact that the passion they had for each other in their youth stuck with them forever, because it never does. It's, you know, we had hard times, we had our fights, we had, you know, but we stuck together and we pushed through it and we worked through our issues and, you know, because we love each other. There's this idea of love as not just a feeling, but as an act of will and that's one of those things that Tolkien focuses a lot on in this particular letter is the effort of will. A man to be faithful to his wife has to exercise his will, you know, to be really into the marriage thing. It has to be a marriage including the will, not just, you know, the passions that come from your gut. So this whole idea of the soulmate for Tolkien is really just a dangerous thing in the same way that chivalry is kind of a dangerous thing. And that's why these two topics are connected so well, I think, in this letter, although he kind of has some stuff in between that I skipped over. Because ultimately, you're always trying to idealize something that in a fallen world just can't be idealized. And again, when I say fallen world, from Tolkien's perspective, that is referring to the Christian idea of the fallen world. But None of us have to have a Christian worldview to look around and say that 
there's nothing perfect about the world. So you don't have to take that with the Christian, um, the Christian lenses, let's say, that Tolkien has. It is still the case, from anybody's perspective, that the world is simply imperfect. And therefore, the idea that you're going to find something perfect in the imperfect world is just a mistake. You need to go into these kinds of relationships with as much of a clear eye as you can. Now, I'm married. I've been there. I know what it's like to be in love. It tends to cloud your vision. It's just a fact. So it's not like... You know, you can go into something with a purely rational mind and pick out the best way to go forward in a romantic relationship or who to have it with. A lot of that decision is made for you, not even by circumstances, but just by hormones. Who you end up liking is in some measure a byproduct of hormonal, you know, compatibility even. They've done scientific studies on this and there's like, I don't remember exactly what the study was, but I want to say that there is some degree to which even kissing another person plays into this because if your hormones and your, you know, whatever is in your system doesn't really mesh very well with the other person, it's not going to come off the same as if it does. So there's all kinds of weird stuff that goes into this scientifically. Not to mention the mere fact of circumstance, who you happen to know, and all that sort of thing. There's a reason why most people end up marrying people from their school, or from their workplace, or from, you know, just wherever they end up spending most of their time. It's just the way it works. So, the idea ultimately is, your true soulmate is just the person that you choose to be mated to and stick to. And if you can't have the willpower to stick to somebody you'll probably never stick to anybody. So that's Tolkien's advice for us on the topic of love, romance, and soulmates. And as I said, you could take the Christian element all the way out of it, and I think it still holds up as pretty good advice. But I just thought it was really worth sharing because it's one of those letters where he goes into a lot of detail about something that has nothing to do with the legendarium, but it shows that he has actually put a good deal of thought into something besides just writing about elves. He was clearly a thoughtful person who actually put some effort into thinking about things besides just the one thing he was passionate about. So it's interesting to get that extra dimension of Tolkien as not just the Oxford professor who wrote a whole bunch of stuff about Middle Earth because his life was not quite that simple. So, hope you enjoyed that. Hope it gave you some food for thought. Like I said, there are things in this letter you could quibble with. You know, if you don't come from a Christian point of view, there are things that you could quibble with for sure. Uh, and I didn't read nearly all of the letter. It's very long, and I skipped over some different parts. But, you know, it's a worthwhile letter to read, if only to get your brain thinking about the topic in ways that you might not have before. So if you did enjoy it, please give the video a like, share it around. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel if you want to catch more of my content. Hit the bell icon to make sure you don't miss any notifications. And of course, I'm on other platforms as well, and you can support me over at Patreon. And you can follow me on Twitter at JRRTLore for occasional Tolkien-related trivia questions. Until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore channel. The Marie. Thanks to all the channel supporters, especially Elf Friends PA Brew News, Tracy Meehan, Nathan DeFore, Paul Leone, and Ole Gregg.